you can kind of um, you can kind of always tell, you know, where somebody's at sometimes by their prayers. If you notice, my prayers have recently been, Lord, help me to disciple my children. Because it's one thing to discipline your children, but it's another thing to disciple them. And so uh, I've really been at my own personal prayer has been that of discipleship for my own children. Hey, you know, last week we were in the Old Testament. Uh, we were celebrating our uh, Trinity Sunday, and that's worldwide celebration uh, in the church. And so we, we found ourselves talking about Noah, of all people, to get to the Holy Trinity, which is beautiful to me because I love the fact that we can, in, in fact, find our New Testament theology in the Old Testament. That's how it should be, right? Well, I want you to go now to probably an obscure book to some, but Numbers. Uh, by some accounts of scholars, the book of Numbers is one of the least read books. Uh, with Well, that and Leviticus, right? And Chronicles, the first part of Chronicles. <laughs> Everybody just sort of skips over the first part of Chronicles. You know what I mean? Anybody knows the... Uh, what is the first nine chapters of First Chronicles is literally a genealogy. And you're like, seriously, guys? I mean, really? Like, what's the point of this? All these people, you know, all these people are, are forgotten. What would you say? Well, there you go. Especially if you're Jewish, right? <laughs> they put a premium on genealogy. So, All right. Um, we're going to find ourselves here in Numbers 11. And uh, Numbers is, is a uh, very important book in the Pentateuch because, quite frankly, it's their rebellion in the wilderness. This is where, this is where they, uh, yeah, I got you. This is where they rebel in the wilderness, all right? So they end up rejecting uh, the promise of God, which is the promised land, right? God tells Abraham, look, I'm going to give you this land. And now they get right up to the land. And, of course, they say, nah, I'm not going in there. We're like grasshoppers compared to those, those warrior guys. And God says, hey, I can, I'm the one who's going to fight. I'm going to do this for you. And they say, nah, we don't believe that. Two of them did. Uh, you'll, you'll notice one of them is going to be mentioned in our text today. I'd love to read the whole thing. Instead, I'm going to drop down right into the middle of the story. Uh, unfortunately, kind of like, again, jumping right into the middle of the movie. So you may have a few questions. I might uh, brush up on the context uh, of both. But I want to drop down to Numbers 11 and in verse uh, 24 here. Notice these words from Holy Scripture. It says, So Moses went out and told the people the words of Yahweh, of the Lord. Remember, anytime you see L-O-R-D in all caps, that's Yahweh. It's a personal name of God. Not just Lord, but it's a personal name of God. And he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him. Just please notice the imagery that's very similar to both the baptism and other places where the Holy Spirit is mentioned as cloud or wind. Notice this then. He comes down in a cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him to my Moses, and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the Spirit rested on them, same language again, the baptism of Jesus, they prophesied. But they did not continue doing it. <clears throat> now, two men remained in the camp. One named Eldad, and the other named Medad. And the Spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out 
uh, to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses, from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets. That the Lord would put His Spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Let's pray. Jesus, thank You. Thank You for Your Holy Word. Your ancient Holy Word. I mean, these words here, this story took place thousands of years ago. And yet, we recount it today. But Lord, we don't want to just remember. We want to experience your Holy Spirit today in this place. We won't be satisfied leaving here with just a story to remember. We want you, O Lord. We need your Spirit. Would your Spirit rest on us now? As we look into your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this story sounds pretty good uh, without many hiccups initially just reading what we read. But in fact, it starts off with something that we're all probably pretty good at. Complaining. Uh, (laughs) Notice here, if you've got your Bible there... uh, Verse 1 of 11, and the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, I, I'm not immune to this. I complain too. Um, you know, I, I do, in fact, complain. I try not to complain at church so that you don't know it. But, um, <clears throat> but I do have complaints. I have misfortunes at times. And sometimes I make those complaints known. Uh, Jessica has probably heard more of my complaining than anybody. Um, and so I've probably heard more of hers. That's, that's the nature of marriage, isn't it? Uh, and we have that sacred union between each other. And so we hear a lot of complaints. But when we became parents, I mean, it's one thing to hear her complain. It's one thing for her to hear me complain. But to hear my children complain. Does anybody understand the, the level of anger that can brew up? When you've provided, I mean, what seems like a feast or what seems like Disney World in your backyard, and yet children start complaining. When then you go the extra mile, you do even more, you do what they say, you give them what they want, and yet the result of which is more complaining. And there are no misfortunes, it's just simple complaining. We have one person among us who complains about complaining. That's how much of a complainer he is. And if you're around us for long, you'll know exactly who that is. (laughs) It's just a part of our family dynamic. I'm so thankful what happens next in this story. (laughs) Just please keep reading verse 1. And when the Lord heard it, when He heard their complaining, right, His anger was kindled. 
And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Even God doesn't like His children to complain when there's nothing to complain about. And so His anger was kindled like a fire that upstarts and burns more vigorously the more complaining that happens. So then, of course, the people cry out. You can see in verse 2, interestingly, they cry out to Moses. Notice the text there in verse 2, and you'll see that the com- they don't cry out to God. They complain to their leader, who is Moses. Remember, Moses means to draw out. You remember that his mother, in order to save him, because they were aborting babies at the demand of the Pharaoh, sent him down in a little ark, uh, a little boat. And he was picked up by one of the princesses of Egypt, and she named him to draw out. (laughs) Uh, That was his name. That's what his name means. Moses means to draw out because she drew him out of the water, right? And yet Mr. Draw Out was called to draw out the people of Israel from Egypt. So his name also has to do with his mission which is to draw the people out. Have you noticed that sin lingers? That sin runs deep. It's not some shallow thing. If if you are lost, you really can't know the depth of sin. Once the Spirit comes inside, then you begin to see, oh, well, wow, I didn't even know that attitude was there. I didn't even know I had that prejudice. I didn't know that was residing in me before. The people of Israel in Numbers, they learned something very important. And that is, even though they had been delivered and freed from Egypt, Egypt was still in them. The ways of Egypt, the mindset of Egypt, the normalcy of Egypt, the default position of Egypt was still in their hearts. Notice what happens in verse 4. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, rabble mob. You know, this group of people that started complaining. You ever notice how (laughs) influential people are on us? Nobody likes to say that. Everybody's like, oh, no, I go my own way. I swim upstream, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, you don't. Um, You really don't. I mean, (laughs) the older you get, the more you see that, and I think you're willing to admit it. But, you know, everybody acts like they're going their own way, and it's like, ah, you know what? You're more influenced by people than you think you are. And, I mean, just like over here, several people were going to raise their hand. So several of the kids were going to raise their hand because they were a good student, you know. But then they saw nobody else did, so they're like, no, no, I'm not a good student either, you know. <laughs> nobody likes to just be the one guy out there with his hand up in the air and nobody else is, right? It's the same thing with complaining. Interestingly, this group gets up complaining, but there's a deeper problem. There's a, uh, this, you know, 
I probably should have done more study on the Hebrew wording here, but I just love the strength of this term, or actually this phrase, a strong craving. Sin has a strong craving. Is anybody willing to say amen to that? Sin has strong cravings. And it's, C.S. Lewis really seared into my mind an illustration. He said, you ever been really hungry? And maybe for breakfast, you know, you I mean you haven't eaten in hours all night long. And now it's time for breakfast. And somebody's cooking bacon. Interestingly, I had bacon this morning, so this is all the more special. And, I mean, when you're hungry and somebody's cooking bacon, I mean, that smells super good. Amen? Anybody with me on that? I mean, it's like, I need something. To, I mean, you get hungry just by the smell of it, like, like your grandma's apple pie. As soon as you smell it, walking, like, man, I'm hungry all of a sudden. Just finished eating, but I'm hungry. And that aroma is all you can think about. And all you can think about is eating that bacon. And he says... Sin is like that. Sin is so tempting. Such a strong craving before we do it. It seems like almost the only thing that we can do is sin. It's that strong. It consumes us. But as soon as we do it, it's like eating the biggest meal on Thanksgiving you've ever eaten... And then going into a room and smelling bacon now, and it smells completely different. You're like, oh my goodness, if I eat anything else, I'm going to throw up. And you're sick of it. And it's more smell. And the smell is not tempting at all. Now the enemy is laughing at us. Temptation works like that. It seems as if it's the only thing that we can do. The only thing that consumes us, but as soon as we take the bite... He's laughing and pointing the finger and condemning us, and guilt sets in. Trust me, I've been an expert on this. And it's a strong craving. And the people of Israel wept again and said, Oh, notice this. This is, this is nuts looking back on this. Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. They remembered their time in Egypt. But what they remembered about their time in Egypt was wrong. Have you ever noticed how the past sometimes gets twisted? Anybody else with me on that? I've several times been with somebody for some event in our life, but when I hear them retell it, I'm like, that's interesting. Don't quite remember it like that. Something got lost, and what got remembered wasn't what I remembered. Um, yeah, they remembered their time in Egypt, but notice what they they remembered the free fish, the watermelons, and the cucumbers, and the 
garlic and onions. They didn't remember the chains. They didn't remember the mandatory abortions. They didn't remember the slavery and forced labor. The dictator who thought he was God and demanded that all bow before him. They remembered the wrong things and we're good at that. And the enemy is good at letting us forget all the times that God has been faithful. And remembering instead the good old times. Sin doesn't have any good old times. And the enemy would love for you to only remember the food. And not the faithfulness of God. He wants to keep our strong craving before us. Because that craving should be turned in a different direction. And that is the one who made us. We all have various things, whether we were born with it or grew up nurtured in it. It doesn't matter. It's with us. What matters is the freedom that Jesus offers us. And get this, because this is, this is such good news and it gets missed so often. He doesn't just want to free us from slavery. Only to have us out on the journey wishing we were back in chains. Back eating free fish in slavery. But instead, God's great grace can do a deep enough work to turn the craving in the right direction. Notice my language, because it's important. We all crave things. Things of the flesh. Whether it be food, lust, or sexuality, or power, fame, whatever... In Ecclesiastes, the preacher has tried and found wanting. Says simply, it's like chasing the wind. (laughs) I've been chasing the wind before. Can you imagine someone out there and you're like, bro, you all right, man? What's going on? I'm trying to catch the wind. Good luck with that, buddy. Been there, done that. No result. But notice, there's a wind that blows that Jesus says to Nicodemus. It was our reading last Sunday. He says, this wind blows where it wants to go. It is the wind of the Spirit. The same wind that on Pentecost in the upper room with the 120 gathered in prayer and fasting that the wind, it says, blew through. That wind wants to blow through and wants to not only be caught, but wants to reside, wants to rest on us. He not only can forgive us of our sin, but he can deliver us 
from the inward sin. Both the sins as actions and the root sin. You know, every tree, every vegetable and fruit plant is producing because it has a root. And if you kill that taproot, that plant will die. God's grace, I'm saying, biblically speaking, is powerful enough to not only forgive us of our actions. Don't stop there. That's been the weak gospel that has been preached for many years in America. But instead, He can transform the heart. That's the taproot of who you are. That's the source, the control center of you, whatever you is and includes. That is a gospel worth telling other people about. We don't have to continually chase after the winds and the cravings of this world. He can change our hearts, desires. Notice again the language I'm using. He doesn't People immediately go, oh yeah, well I guess we all have to be prudes. Sticks in the mud. We can't enjoy life. We stop doing this and stop doing... Let's start focusing on what we get to do. Which is love people from a free heart. Not lustfully. Not from slavery. But from a freedom that I choose to love you because of a love that's in me. That's not my own. Notice, it's a gift that has been given to me. And I can't help but share that gift of love toward others. What if we started living like that? Rather than always just, oh, I need to give up this and I need to do that. And I need... How about we die to ourself and live to God? That's the whole message of numbers. I mean, theologically speaking, if we want to talk about sanctification, that's what sanctification is. His holy work among us. He's already, they're out of Egypt, and yet they're desiring Egypt. Haven't you been there before in your Christian life? Maybe you're there now. You've given your heart to Jesus. He's forgiven you of your sins, but you're still craving the world. I'm saying he can redirect our craving. He doesn't kill craving. He gave us cravings. He gave us desires. He gave us this body. But this body, your body, my soul, your heart, our minds, our attitudes, our personalities are never complete without him. In the sentence. Was it Jerry Maguire? You complete me? Was that right? I mean, I think he had it right, right? At least if he's talking about God. You complete me. God completes us. He doesn't want to destroy your humanity. He wants to make it alive. We think we're giving up something when we're starting to wake up. You're giving up the sleep of death only to rise in the newness of resurrection life. Whoo, that's pretty good, folks. I don't know. 
Sometimes you're preaching something that's obviously not from you, it's from God, and it's like, wow, that, I just got to say amen too. Like, I, I say amen, not to myself, but to the message of the gospel and the good news that people need to hear. It goes into this explanatory note here in 7, 8, and 9, talking about manna. So if you want to know what manna is, read that section. And then the, the, the people start weeping. <laughs> and then Moses, you know, this is a 10 through 15, fascinating. We're not going to go into all of it. I just want to simply point out, Moses now starts complaining. Because, I mean, people, I mean, my kids start complaining, and now I'm complaining that they're complaining. It's kind of the thing here, right? It's like now you've destroyed the whole vacation, you know, because of complaining. (laughs) Here they are vacationing through the desert, trying to get to the promised land. And somebody started complaining. It goes into a rabble where everybody's complaining. Now even Moses himself, he says, look, God, why did you put me here with these people? Carrying these people along, these, you know, stiff-necked, actually in the Hebrew, the word here is stiff-necked people is what he ends up calling them. Like Like a donkey. By the way, we just explained this to the boys this week. <laughs> we were watching some of the Marvel um, movies, you know, and a couple words come up, you know, so with needed explanation, I'm like, guys, there's another word for a donkey that they're misusing, you know, it's a cuss word. And st-. Moses is like, these people are like a donkey that you turn left and he sticks his neck out and come, you know, and he's not going left. A stiff-necked people. That's explained me before. No. Some of us pride ourselves on our stiffed neckedness or our hard headedness, but not to God. We must bow the head to God, He's the King. He says, notice just you don't have to read it all read it later but he says this people them there you know how any parents in here do that kind of thing like babe your kids are sitting here complaining and ruining our vacation they become her kids all of a sudden you know what i mean or she's like take your son right not our son (laughs) not a we anymore it's not a collective but instead it's your problem now Um, And Moses says, look, this people, them, there, that's his language all throughout this little escapade here. And he says, uh, I don't know why you put me in charge of these people. All they do is complain. I wish I was dead. Just if you got me in charge, then just kill me so I can see my own wretchedness. That's the (laughs) I love that word. I have not run across that word in a long time. He says, if I find favor in your sight at all, just kill me at once because I can then see how wretched I truly am. And sometimes we get in this little pity party and we really think we got it bad. And then we meet somebody that's got it worse. And there's always somebody that's got it worse. Makes our little problem seem like nothing. But it is our problem. And God deals with Moses and he says, um, all right, I hear you, Moses. I see you and I hear you. <laughs> um, call 70 men from out of the tribes. I'm going to take my spirit that's upon you 
and I'm going to share it with them. So he does that, and then we come into the section that we read. And the Lord has just, notice again, the Spirit rested on them, and they immediately prophesied. So these 70 guys, he designates them as officers over the people. This is also also Jethro's idea, which is uh, Moses' father-in-law. And it's a way of doing, it's really kind of the first government that we see in the Bible. And so the Lord shares his spirit with these seven individuals. They prophesy, verse 25, but they didn't continue doing it. Then in verse 26, there were two of the 70 that had stayed in the camp. And they all of a sudden, even though they're not with the collective group, you know, outside of the camp here, prophesying, doing their thing, leading... They start prophesying in the camp. And so this young man, and notice their names, Eldad, which in Spanish would be the dad, right? And then me dad, which like me dad, you know? So it's like, hey, Moses, Eldad, the dad, and me dad. I just think that's fun. And then Joseph, jo- sorry, Joshua, son of Nun. It's like, wow, these guys got some interesting names, you know? Eldad, me dad, Joshua, son of Nun. He's the son of Nun, you know? Anybody get that? He's the son of none, right? Not N-U-N, but N-O-N-E. I just thought it was funny. But he says, look, these guys are, this young guy, it's always a young dude that ends up messing up here at the same time. He goes, Eldad and Medad, they're prophesying in the camp. And in Joshua's son of none, the assistant of Moses from his youth, my Lord, Moses, stop them from doing this. They should be over here with us. They shouldn't be doing it over there. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Like, all of a sudden you're getting jealous because of me. Like, you don't want me to not have the glory here that I ordained these people? And those two cats over there started prophesying? The Spirit does what He wants is the point. Who are we to say who is led by the Spirit or not? We're not in charge. And Moses is, I mean, Moses is a meek man. You can say a lot about Moses, but he is a meek man. Notice what he says, also a wise man and a prophet. Would that all the Lord's people were prophets. That he'd put his spirit on all of them. So saying, look, don't, don't come to me with this kind of request because you think I need all the glory. Or I'm the only one who can do the preaching. Or I'm the only one who can do the prophesying. Or I'm the only one who can do the ordaining or the singing or the serving. No. The Spirit will raise up who He wants to. And we simply say, yes, sir. Because I guarantee if you would have known me in 1999, you wouldn't have ordained me. At 17 years old. But God did. I don't deserve it. But he did. And I can't deny it. And I won't deny it. Would that all God's people were prophets. I think we can say the same thing today, can't we? I wish that God would fill every single person in this room, outside of this room, for his purposes. It does not mean we're all going to look the same. We won't. 
or act the same or do the same things or have the same vocations or callings. That's the beauty of his body. We're not all a big toe. We all have our part to play in his design. That's why it's so important that we follow the leading of the Spirit. Because alone he knows. Well, then the latter part of the chapter there, um, they get their meat. God basically says, look, you want meat? I'll give you meat. Not for a day, not for three days, not for five days, not even for a week. I'll give you a month's supply of quail. And they fly in, they die in the desert, which is not an unusual thing, by the way. But notice what brings them in. 31, then the wind from the Lord (laughs) sprang up and brought the quail in. They ate it until it was coming out of their noses. He sent a plague to kill the ones who had started the complaining. And they called the place Grave of Craving. Which is Kibroth Hatava. Grave of Craving. In Genesis, when Cain is thinking about killing Abel, God says a very important thing to him Sin is crouching at your door. The imagery is that of an animal right outside your door, ready to pounce. Sin is crouching at your door. That's not where he ends, he says, but you can overcome it. It doesn't have to pounce. You can be protected. I can set my table up in the presence of your enemies and you not be destroyed. Cain chose wrong. And after he did, God said something else, and that is, the blood of your brother is crying out to me. How many people need us to serve Jesus for them? We oftentimes think of people's blood being on our hands as an offensive act like something we do to them. But what about what we don't do for people? Isn't that just as bad? To stand by and watch the world go to hell will be on us. Because all of us are called to the mission. Our craving will send us to the grave if we don't overcome it in the power of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't want to just come to rest on us. He wants to come to live in us. Make his home there. I got a picture here that I took this morning early. And uh, I told you last week, and I'm ending with this. I told you last week there was a dove on top of my garage. You know, remember I went out there and I was praying and I looked up and there was a dove just sitting up there. Well, interestingly, right here. (laughs) I do a little jump move. Um. There's a dove. He went from the top to inside our garage. Yes, she, thanks. My baby has been, uh, not Jessica, but my little baby, um, has, has been <laughs> telling us, birdie, birdie, with her babies, you know. 
And uh, she moved inside. And, and again, you know, maybe it means nothing to you, and it's, I don't believe in, like, looking at everything as a sign, but that's a sign for me. That the Spirit, who, again, is represented as a dove, we talked about that last week, wants to not just reside on us, on our life, blessing on us, but instead in us. And it'll be like a river of life flowing out. Would you like for God's Holy Spirit to rest in you? To be your satisfaction in life so that craving doesn't send you to your grave? He can. I know personally he can take the strongest sinful cravings and turn them to himself. Turn them to others. And that's where true satisfaction, happiness, and joy resides and lives. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.